Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this truly special edition of Freeman Means Business Wonder Women in Business podcast. Today, we have an ally on the show. I'm super, super duper excited to welcome Dr. David Smith, co-author of the amazing book, Athena Rising. Welcome, David. Thank you for being here on the show today. Thanks, Susan. It's great to be here with you. I'm so delighted to have you. So occasionally, I have allies on the show. I am one of those women who um, believes that, you know, if we focus only on women, lifting only women, sharing voices only of women, we then swing the pendulum the other way and we have an equal but opposite problem. So I love to share the voices of men who are helping us to course correct. And you're one of those men. So tell me all about you and what you've been up to and how you get involved. Happy to do that. And again, thanks for, for having me on the show. I mean, it's, it's a real honor and pleasure to be here with you and, and, and with your audience to, to share some of the work that we're doing right now. So a little bit about me and my background. Uh, I'm currently a professor of sociology I'm at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. And uh, I teach in the National Security Affairs Department and I keep teach a course called National Security Decision Making. And that's kind of my day job and what I do during the day. But as a sociologist, um, my background is in social psychology and military sociology. I've done all my research uh, in the applied area of the, we call the intersection of gender, work, and family. And I started doing my research uh, in the area of dual career couples and, and looking at career path um, issues in, in a variety of different professions, including the military, uh, looking at how decision-making works in dual-career couples. Um, I later went on and did a lot of work around looking at uh, career paths and, and retention of, of women in um, STEM professions in particular, um, and currently working on a, a research team uh, doing some really fun and interesting work, I think, that has a lot of broad applicability in terms of uh, bias in performance evaluations. And we last year recently uh, published uh, both in the peer-reviewed academic side as well as in the uh, with Harvard Business Review and a couple other outlets, um, the research there and our findings around gender bias uh, in performance evaluations. And we're about just about finished up with the second study looking at the intersectionality of race and gender um, and how that bias uh, is very different as we think about performance evaluation. So a lot of great research there. Um, you mentioned, you know, and people know about our book, uh, Fina Rising, How and Why Men Should Mentor Women. Uh, I co-authored with uh, Brad Johnson, who is a professor of psychology at the U.S. Naval Academy, our undergraduate institution in Annapolis. And Brad and I uh, taught together at the Naval Academy for, for many years and started working on this project that was really about how do we begin to move more quickly towards gender equality and, and really gender parity in the workplace? Um, and, and one of the challenges we found was that from a professional development perspective, mentoring and sponsoring, advocacy in particular, that um, these gender inequities often get looked at as women's issues, right? There are challenges there that um, you know, and, and that's not uh, that's not accurate and it's not fair. Um, and it also sends a very clear message in many cases to men that it's not it's not uh, something that they need to be involved in, engaged in. And so 
one of the challenges we were looking at in particular was how do we engage men in mentoring and sponsoring and advocacy? And that's where we did the research and wrote the book, Athena Rising, that we've been working on speaking at a lot of different organizations and conferences and companies today and working on how to engage men in that conversation. And then our most recent work uh, that we just finished and delivered the manuscript uh, to our publisher, Harvard Business, uh, a couple months ago, is on the broader topic of how men can partner with women as allies in the workplace to really make individual change and the systemic change um, that is so important that we think has got to happen uh, sooner than later if we're going to, again, get to gender parity in the workplace. And a lot of that came out of, again, after the, in the post Me Too uh, environment and the post Me Too workplace out there, that, um, you know, mentoring and sponsoring is one kind of a narrow focus of some of the challenges that, uh, that women face in the workplace, but there's a much broader um, set of issues out there. And, and this book is very aspirational and, and we're looking forward to, again, talking more about how we can uh, think about how we can individually show up at work each day, right, and be good, better allies for each other. Well, let me ask you something about your second book. First of all, love your first book. Um, I hope that everyone listening, if you haven't read it, you run out, buy it, click on Amazon, go to Barnes and Nobles, wherever you buy your books, get it, because it's important to have men involved um, and they get it. They get it. There's going to be something in that book that appeals to you that strikes a chord. Um, but on your second book, this is really important because I think that the Me Too movement uh, scared a lot of men, shut people down, had them say, well, gosh, you know, I'm not sure what to say or do. I'm going to stay as far away from this as possible. And that hurts the cause for everyone. And I think fear has kept you know, even a lot of women, they, they don't know what to do with men who want to be involved and men don't know how to be involved. So it's great that you're talking about mentorship and sponsorship. People don't even know the difference between those two. Why don't you address that? What is the difference between mentorship and sponsorship? Great question. And we get that all the time. The And I think it's important because I do think that they sometimes get used uh, unknowingly, interchangeably and in some cases. And, you know, again, our approach to mentoring is remembering this is a developmental relationship. Fundamentally, it's a relationship between two people. And, it, and the developmental part of it is important, right? That uh, it's an ongoing, it's, it's different from coaching in the sense that, you know, coaching is, is, can be a very specific uh, skill set that you're working on to improve. Uh, sponsoring, on the other hand, is, is much more of the... Um, advocating for somebody and purely just advocating. There's not, there may not even be a relationship between right. the people. In many cases, great sponsorship happens without the person being sponsored, even recognizing or realizing until much later down the road that they've been sponsored, that somebody has recognized their talent and they've pushed them forward. They've provided opportunities. They've opened doors to, to create these opportunities for them. In other cases, the sponsorship is known and it's very explicit in the sense that somebody is being brought on board to a particular opportunity or a project to fill uh, a niche need in many cases. And, it, and it's, it's one of these win-wins where it, the, the person who is being sponsored wins in the sense that they're given an opportunity that they may not have otherwise had. And the person doing the sponsoring, right, is filling uh, there's something in it for them in terms of right helping them to fulfill a requirement they have in the work that they're doing out there. 
But the mentoring pieces, you know, in particular that we focus on, um, remembering that relationship aspect has to be, has to, it needs to be holistic in, in nature in the sense that we're, we're mentoring the whole person, not just the work. Um, so it's everything from uh, what's going on outside of work uh, as well that needs to be thought of and, and some of the maybe interpersonal things that might be going on at work that we need to think about as well. The what other do you aspect mean by that? Explain more about that. So, so mentoring the, outside of work, what, it, what do you mean? Like, you know, I always say bring your whole self to life. You can't drop who right. you are nine to five, just be one person and then five to nine, be someone else. What, what do you mean by that? Mentor the whole, you know, outside of work too. What do you mean? Yeah, absolutely. And the part of this is that, you know, again, remembering that we all have, uh, you know, we all have families and, and again, the things that, that we're involved in outside of work beyond family as well, whether it's community involvement, um, other other programs that are out there, that we make sure that, again, that's all taken into consideration as part of the, of, of again, our, work for, our workplace performance as well. So if you're struggling with how to, for example, how to balance or how to find a way to integrate work and life in a way that works for you at your phase of life, um, that should be something that comes up in the conversation. It shouldn't be taboo to talk about family or kids or, or all the challenges we're having, because again, one affects the other. And I, I think that's really important that we understand that and that we don't avoid those those pieces. And as you said, the, the other aspect of being your whole self, being your authentic self when you come to work, not hiding parts of who you are and understanding the challenges of, of being able to be that whole person when you come to work. And, and you have to have the trust in the relationship. And that's why, again, great mentoring relationships are founded fundamentally on trust, that you have to be able to talk about the, the key issues that are uh, important in, in understanding somebody's vision of where, they, where they're trying to go, and what they're trying to accomplish in life. And you can't do that if you don't have the whole picture. David, I cannot tell you. So I, I, people who know me know that I get pretty personal on these podcasts. Um, you are really striking a chord. So I come from the world of billable hour, legal. Um, it's very much not where you are. Where, what you're saying is not, I mean, you, you come from military, so I'm not sure. I, I think they're actually more advanced <laughs> than legal. Um, the legal world is not ready or should be, but it's so far behind from what you're saying. Um, it, and I believe in what you're saying. I believe we absolutely need to um, embrace our whole selves and, you know, get real about the humanness of, you know, lawyers and those who work with lawyers and the, the day-to-day, um, you know, operations in a law firm you know, bringing that whole self to the law firm. It's an industry where the suicide rate, the um, alcoholism, drug use is so high because you're not allowed to bring your whole self to work. It is, uh, there's a lot of mental health issues. There are a lot of mental health issues in that. Uh, mm -hmm. And you are just, I just, your voice, what you're saying is so powerful. Um, I want to get you into every law firm across the country and have you speak and share your book and your findings. This is incredible. Um, I'm going to totally introduce you to some of the, the editors that I know in that world. I mean, this is great to hear you say that because if you can, 
share this message in the military and with large corporations across the country, you should certainly be sharing it in the legal industry because they need it most. Um, wow. Yay. I love to hear you say this stuff. So tell me a little bit. Thank you. I'm almost reluctant to even ask this question because the show is only up to about 45 minutes, but, um, and you probably have a long list of <laughs> proud professional accomplishments. But my next question would be, um, what is your proudest professional accomplishment? That's a great question. And, um, you know, I've been very fortunate in my, over, you know, my many years and my different careers that I've had. Um, so I, I would say, that my proudest accomplishment is is really the publishing of my first book our first book athena rising it was um you know it was such an inspiration and a passion in writing that book and and i can tell you that you know it, it was extra meaningful right in terms of the pride i have in in the product that we produced um to write it with my good friend and colleague uh, dr brad johnson and I think uh, it's funny when people ask you about your relationship with a co-author because I think there's a lot, there's an expectation or an understanding that sometimes that, that's kind of a rocky uh, yes. relationship. But Brad and I are such uh, good friends and and great colleagues, and we we spend, which is a good thing, because we spend a lot of time together on the road speaking and doing workshops. And I I tell you, you know, we we feed off of each other through that and and which is why I think we went on to the second book in particular and um but it it was such a I, I think I said before a, such a passion to write that book uh we we really poured our you know our our hearts and souls and into that book and um and it you know it, it was a lot of pride that goes into you know when you put your name on a on a, a product like that it sounds like you had fun working together. And, you know, it's so funny because when you were saying that, I was like, you know, you usually later on, years later, you hear the untold story about the rocky relationship between the two. <laughs> You're right. You hit it right on the head. I was thinking, yeah, yeah, we'll hear later how they hated each other and you know, <laughs> how Brad took this from David and blah, blah, blah. But no, that's awesome that you got along so well and that you, um, you know, happily chose to write the next book together. So I, I'm looking forward to meeting him too, uh, whether it's in real life or virtually or over a podcast someday as well. Um, well, that's awesome. That's great that that's your proudest professional accomplishment. Perhaps in some way, because it was your first, it remains your proudest. I see there probably will be a number of books uh, coming our way from the two of you. Uh, I'm looking forward to your second one, to buying and reading your second one. Who has been your, um, maybe your mentor in your career or your inspiration perhaps? Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, again, very fortunate to have had many uh, influential people in my life uh, that have made such a, a difference and, and really in profound ways steered me and, and guided me in ways that I didn't even understand probably at the time that, it, you know, I think a lot of us reflect back and, and have a better appreciation for how, how important and how influential they were in your life uh, and your career along the way. And uh, so, but I always like to talk in particular about um, my mentor in, in grad school, and, and she's still my my mentor today, even though she's retired. And um, but but somebody who I very close to and, and still keep in touch with, and every time I'm making important decisions, I, I 
I, I can guarantee you that I will pick up the phone and, and we'll have a, we'll have a conversation. And that's uh, Dr. Mady Siegel. And Mady was my uh, graduate advisor, dissertation advisor in, during my PhD program at the University of Maryland in College Park. And, you know, the, the reason I would say that, you know, she was both inspirational and, and, and very influential in my career because she, um, she challenged me in ways that, that I don't think others have done uh, to challenge my thinking, uh, challenge in many ways where I am today writing about the work that I'm writing about in terms of gender work and family. And, and I'll give you an example um, that, you know, in terms of male allies, and in this in our new book here that we're we're getting ready to work on finish uh, having published um one of the things that i think is really important for men to hear and it's not just men but it's everyone but in, if we think about gender in particular with with men a lot of times men think they are uh, they're being very gender savvy that they've uh, they've got the answers they've got all the solutions they know how to to help solve the problems out there and you know, I, I I certainly kind of have always counted myself in that category as well over the years for a lot of reasons that um, I'm I'm part of the solution and not part of the problem. And Shocking. <laughs> yeah, and it and it took her it really took her to open my eyes to realize how that was great to think that, but in many ways I was still part of the problem and and recognizing how that was, was an important leap for me in my, both my personal journey as an ally, and as well as my professional um, in, in terms of the research and the writing and the work that I do today. And, um, and she really opened my eyes to that. It was one of these where, and many people have talked about this, about how sometimes a, a great mentor has the ability without you recognizing it to kind of hold a mirror up in front of your face yes. for you to really see yourself for the first time. And, and I think she did that for me. And um, I always joke, joke with her about it because, um, you know, in the Navy, mentors often have this very uh, masculine term uh, called, and kind of funny too, I think, sea daddies. Uh, and you may yeah. have heard before that a mentor is kind of your sea daddy or your sponsor is a sea daddy. And so I, I always would go back there and I said, I said, maybe, but, you know, as my mentor, I, I said, you know, you really are my, you know, from the military side, you're my sea mama. And <laughs> she, always, she always finds that she loves telling that story about how I call her my sea mama. Uh, but, but she has been, she's, she's been there with me, you know, for the last uh, 10, well, actually now 14 years uh, since we, we first met in grad school. Uh, and she's been there with me every step of the way with my career and helping me uh, make decisions and, and really kind of see where my potential was and challenging me along the way. And, and I, I just think, you know, from a growth perspective, it's so emblematic and so important, you know, from a mentoring perspective. So anyway, that's so I, uh, I Dr. Love this. The story is such a great example of the solution known as curiosity about the other. Um, you know, instead of, you know, hanging around people who look and sound and act like you do, you were curious about and she was curious about the other. So, you know, I, I'm not sure if you're the same age or did exactly the same thing in the Navy, but, you know, the fact that you're different gender, different, you know, everything, 
was really a great example of how we can learn from the other and being curious about the other and empathizing, listening with empathy and not judgment, uh, learning what the same conversation might sound like to different ears, um, learning what the same picture might look like to different eyes. Um, I think that's super powerful in the work that I do. It's amazing how a man and a woman can have a conversation and walk away with two different meanings. So I always make sure that they confirm with one another, what did you think just happened? Or what did you hear? Or what did you see? And it can be totally different. It's crazy. It's crazy. So I love that your uh, mentor or, you know, has, is a woman. That's fabulous. And I'm sure that, that um, we'll see a lot of that in Athena Rising and we'll see a lot of that in your newest book. So let's talk about your new book. Tell me more, tell me everything I need to know about your new book to make me want to go buy several copies. Well, great. Yeah, uh, so this, as I said, this is, was an inspiration that came out of, um, as we were work, going out there and talking about Athena Rising, in particular, the, the mentoring and sponsoring pieces in the workplace, um, as, the, as we hit kind of Me Too going widespread, in uh across the world not just in, the, in america but really across the world that we were being asked to talk more broadly not just in the in the very kind of narrow focus of of mentoring and sponsoring but how how can men be better show up and be better allies at work broadly and in every setting whether they're in a mentoring relationship or they're just friends or they're the boss or even if you're the junior guy in your organization how can you show up and be part of the solution as a part, as opposed to being part of the problem, and and so Brad and I went out and, and did the research, and you know one of the great things that I I love about the book is that we had the opportunity to interview uh, some of the I mean incredible most incredibly successful women across industries and professions out there, in, in the mostly in the United States, um, who gave their time, you know, because they believed in the book and what we were the work that we were doing as much as everybody else and um they shared their experiences right around men because again the book is aspirational this is not a blame and shame of of men that you know are doing the wrong things and not what not to do right as much as it right. is to what what is what does great allyship look like how do men show up and, and how do they do this and what what are the specific things that they can work on and uh, so that a lot of great aspirational stories from these women, and we wanted to include men's voices in the book, but we wanted to do it in a, in a very thoughtful and appropriate way as we're talking about, you know, again, solving gender equality and creating gender parity in the workplace. Um, so our rule, our rule was that the only men who were allowed to be interviewed and be part of the book, they had to be recommended or nominated by one of the women that we interviewed. So in other words, men, men couldn't self-proclaim and throw on their male ally cape and say, I'm here to save the day. Um, they actually had to be recommended by one of the women that we interviewed. And so um, we had that great opportunity, too, to talk to men who have been identified by women as being good allies in the workplace and, and to talk to them about their experiences and, and talk about some of those fears that you mentioned. And I think that's such a such a timely conversation. And of course, Me Too 
continues to come up quite a bit in the conversation out there. And, you know, one of the things that we, we come back with, and, and we heard this from a lot of men too, by the way, um, is that we, a lot of men feel like it's important that we have this conversation in the workplace to remind each other as men that what Me Too is really all about. Me Too is about women asking to come to work and not be harassed or assaulted. Right. I mean, it's a really low bar, don't you think? I was just about to <laughs> we, say, is that too much to ask? Exactly. I mean, it, it, it's not like they're asking very much out there and that, you know, we can do a lot better than that. And that these false narratives that keep getting perpetuated by, by men, right? They're, it's not women doing this, it's men doing this, that uh, the false narrative that somehow women have suddenly become scary or dangerous and, you know, oh my God, stranger danger. And uh, right. we, you know, <laughs> somehow we can't, we can't interact with them in the workplace because, uh, you know, they, they're going to falsely accuse us, accuse us of sexual harassment. And I'm sorry, but not sorry, that there's no yeah. evidence to support that. There is absolutely zero evidence to support that. And that we as men, when we hear it, we have to push back. We have got to begin pushing back on that narrative and stop it, nip it in the bud. Um, and, and we'd like to remind guys that, hey, you know, if you're you know, like us, like Brad and I, we, we look at ourselves and go, you know, we're two imperfect dudes who are trying to do the right thing. We have good intentions. Yes, we step in it once in a while and make mistakes like all, like all people do. Right. Um, but, you know, if you're one of those guys that, you know, you're, you're probably going to be just fine if you're not a serial perpetrator or harasser in the workplace. And you're probably more likely to get struck by lightning than to be, be falsely accused of sexual harassment. Right. Um, but I think there's this kind of we can if we could just kind of rebase this conversation a little bit, I think that would be one one of the things that we need to do. And a lot of men talk to us about that, about we have to get past the fear and the anxiety around having relationships with uh, with women in the workplace. It's it's like, no, it has to happen. And it's important, you know, including friendships, right? We have to have, you can't just be friends with all the dudes at work. You got to have, you got to have your work sisters as friends too, because that's how you're going to begin to have the trusting relationships where you can share, you can ask questions, you can uh, ask about, hey, how, you know, when I said this today in the meeting, how did that land? You know, was that okay? And And you can get a, you can get a really, um, caring, uh, we call it carefrontation as one of our, uh, oh, interview that. interviewees gave to us that, Hey, you know, sometimes you have to be confronted about some of these things. And, and if you do it in a friendship way, right, that we trust and, and there's care involved and then, you know, you can call it carefrontation that I'm only giving you this feedback because I care. If I didn't care about you, I wouldn't talk to you. I wouldn't even spend my time and energy to talk to you about it. But because I do care, I'm going to give you that feedback. And, and in, in particular for guys, I think it's also, uh, and not just guys, but allies broadly, um, we have to be receptive and, and ask, you know, expect and ask for feedback on how we're doing because we want to be better and we want to improve and recognizing that we're not perfect, that, um, hey, when somebody does give you critical feedback and it's like, you know, when you said this, um, it made me feel this way, you need to be ready to respond in an appropriate way. and, and the, and that means saying thank you or gosh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on that. I'm sorry, sorry that it, that happened. You've uh, felt that way and I'm trying to work on this and I'm going to go think about this and would it be okay maybe even if I came back to talk to you more about that later. 
right? To, to have a very thoughtful response ready to go uh, when it comes to that. The other thing that guys talked about in particular and that women uh, mentioned to us that they most appreciated when they were in the room, but they recognized that in many cases it happened when they weren't in the room is, again, calling out things that are, it's like, don't just accept that it's, hey, locker room talks okay, or boys will be boys, or whatever the excuse might be, uh, that when sexist comments or things are said, it just gets to be this, you know, Brad and I talk about how, you know, compared to the ocean, right, that we're all swimming around in the ocean, and this guy's, you know, the water's nice and warm and comfy, and we're happy, but, you know, for other fish in the ocean, the water's really toxic, right? And for women in particular, it can be very toxic. And we just don't even recognize it until somebody calls it out and disrupts it, right? So we call this the disrupting the status quo, which is so important because it's, in many ways, it's hard to fix the problem, right? In the workplace, changing the culture, if you don't see the problem. And right. it is, again, with starting with the assumption that people are good and have good intentions for the most part, that if we call it out and then we can begin to develop some awareness and some understanding and do a little education and we can grow, right? And we, we can become better and then we can actually do something about it when we know. But in many cases, it's just, we don't even know. And guys are really um, hesitant to confront other men. It can be really challenging. And, and it, for many of us, it's, you might be in a group setting and teams or meetings and, and something gets said it's like what do I do you know do I say something do I disrupt the the meeting and right and so we spent a lot of time in the book giving best practices and some ideas on how to do this and Brad and I often do these with audiences and just getting them to think about hey what are the what's something really simple I could do and one we love to do with audiences is just say you know it's kind of like you know at home when you drop food on the floor and we all have a probably a time rule it's like five seconds, two <laughs> seconds, three seconds, whatever the, you know, that rule is, right? Well, bystander paralysis is kind of the same thing. And the research shows that, you know, if you don't say or do something within about three seconds, then you're probably not, nobody's probably going to do anything at all at that point. So Brad and I always like to have a kind of a, this ongoing dude conversation in front of the audience. And we just tell the audience to say, hey, if you hear something that doesn't land quite right with you, or maybe it's a little offensive or sexist in some way, just, we want you just to yell, ouch, just yell, ouch. And we do I this with the audience. And they, they build up the, the confidence to say something and to do something and they yell, ouch. And the great thing about ouch is it's like, well, it disrupts, right? Everybody looks at you and it's like, ooh, why did, why did he or she say that? And it gives you a few seconds to think about, okay, now what am I going to do? <laughs> am I going hey. to proceed on with this? Or are we just going to leave it like that and follow up with it later or whatever? But it's, you disrupted the status quo. You called something out and it's, it's part of it, right? Is And um, I think that in particular, that as men, you know, we have to do this even when women aren't in the room and, and then own it. And then sometimes this happens when there might be just one woman in the room. And when a sexist comment is made like that, you can't say, well, hey, John, you know, don't, you can't say that, you know, that's not okay, because Mary's in the room, Mary's here with us. And it's like, no, 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 that's, that's not cool at all. You, you have got to own that and go, no, 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 it's not okay, because it offends me, and it's not right. And here's why, and let me tell you. Um, but owning it, I think is really important and, and not um, kind of pushing it off that, oh, because there's a woman in a room or somebody else in the room that you can't say those things. 
So there's so much about what you just said that I am ju uh, jumping off the wall. So excited that you're bringing this up and, you know, you, you gave me more than three reasons to buy your book. I mean, like I'm buying tons of books. I'm buying tons of books. Um, I was going to ask you, you know, in general, do you find that men don't think gender inequality is their problem, but clearly you are making them recognize that it's everyone's problem and you're giving them the tools to say, um, you know, it's not something we should work on just when Mary's in the room, but even when Mary's not in the room, it's something we need to work on. And I love the ouch um, strategy because it does keep you from sweeping the problem under the rug. It does give you, I love the three second rule. We all can relate to that. I'm a mom. I remember when I was like, okay, dirt won't hurt. Pick it up, eat it. You know, we're not going to waste that. <laughs> or, you know, okay, that's been on the floor too long. The dog licked it. We're going to throw it away. So I get it. It's a great analogy. This is all so wonderful. And have to have two men up in the room um, making the case for the right thing, not just speaking on behalf of women. That's not what I'm saying. You're not doing uh, the job that I do or the job that a woman should do. You're doing the job everyone, regardless of gender, should be doing. And that is speaking up for the right thing to do. Um, I love your tools, your tips, your tricks, your um, strategies and tactics. I cannot wait to buy the new book, um, to share it with so many. I have a huge event coming up in December and I do these annually. The next one will be in Houston. Somehow you and I need to talk offline about how I can have you involved um, and to hook you up in legal and all kinds of great things that I'm excited about. But here I am veering off track. Let's get back on track because I do have other questions I want to ask you. You just got me all excited about this new book. Um, what has been, and I know it's not been a bed of roses, I'm sure, um, but what has been your biggest challenge or setback that you're willing to share and how did you overcome it? Yeah, I'm gonna go back to early in uh, my career and I'm gonna give a personal story here about, uh, for my wife and I, so we're, we're both, uh, both in the military and you know, in the uh, in the 80s, there weren't a lot of military women. There are, there aren't as many. There still aren't a lot of them today, but there there certainly were a lot fewer back in in the 80s. And you know, we were recently married, and you know, the beginnings of our career. Um, and it was one of these where, for the first time, you know, we had to. Um, you know, I was going off to my first squadron. My 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 wife was going off to her first command, and. Um, we had to negotiate, right, with uh, the military on on being located together, right, which was not something that the military was used to at that point, much less lots of other civilian corporations and companies out there, you know, of, of trying to deal with dual career families. Right. And and so um, we, we didn't find a lot of uh, empathy when it came time to talk to the people who were responsible for for uh, doing this, it was kind of a new, this co-location kind of being located in the same area with your spouse was kind of a new idea back then to some extent. And certainly for the military, it was brand new. And, and so there weren't rules or policies or anything to go by. We were kind of making it up as we went. 
Is it and fair I, to say, David, that it used to be, and I say this um, because my husband, as you know, is military. Is it fair to say you used to have to take what you get and don't throw a fit? There, there was a lot of that, uh, that idea, that mentality out yes. there of just take it and, and move on and you figure it out later kind of a thing. And um, I can still remember, you know, we, we attempted to, uh, to do this. What we thought was the logical way was to talk to the people. We had different assignment officers who would take care of our assignments. And so we went to them and, and said, hey, we're going to be really upfront with you here. And here's, here's us. And here's what we're trying to accomplish. And we just wanted to be located in the same geographical area. And, uh, that, and that was it. That's all we asked for. And said, can you help us? And uh, we thought we had worked out a solution, and then it came time for our assignments, and they were given to us. And as it turned out, we couldn't have been too much further apart. Where my wife was uh, received an assignment in Florida, and I received my assignment to a squadron in Hawaii. And wow. I was like, "Well, if this is their idea of co-location, um, boy, <laughs> I'm not sure how this is all going to work out," you know? Um, and and so, you know, with the military, those are, of course, nothing's forever because uh, two or three years in one place is about all you ever get. Um, but, oh, but, you know, still. we weren't, yeah, we just weren't willing to accept it. And, and it was a very, you know, it was a, it was a challenging time because we, so we ended up having to, to go ahead and, and start off, you know, typical military, go follow your orders and, and head off onto your, to your locations. And we did that. And then, but we continued to work the system, believing that um, that if we found the right people who who would there would be some good people there who would understand the situation, and that we could find them and we could make this a logical argument about why um, this could be done. This was possible to put us together, much like other other uh, people. And so we did. It took us it, it took us over nine months to figure that out to to find the right allies, as I would call them today, right? Yes. Who were in some cases they were just influential people who knew us and were able to, uh, you know, to be influential in the system and to make help us make the argument, be our voice, amplify our voices there. And I think you know, again, very much a very ally. Uh, concept of amplifying each other's voices and, and making those arguments and so we were able to figure it out but it but it took us almost a year to to get back together and, and do that and it was a very challenging time and in a lot of ways it influenced me later on in life in, in terms of my uh, academic research and the work that I do today around understanding how again the workplace is set up uh, for particular people and yes. it was created by men for men to do men's work and the fact that women are now, uh, you know, more than 50% of the workforce um, is something we've got to, we've got to, you know, we're struggling with when we've got, it's going to require a systemic change, not just an individual behavior, which we were talking about earlier with allies, but we've got to make the systemic changes to, to the workplace. And that's, that takes longer, it takes time. It's much more cultural, but we, uh, we can't just focus on the individuals. We also have to think about how we can systemically change the workplace. So that was very influential. And, and, my background. So David, that story, I mean, there's so much about that story. So I am the, the wife that would have, you know, written to Admiral Willard or made the case or done a public campaign to get you two together. I'm the troublemaker. I am the, the one who's, uh, you know, 
my husband was an 06 in the Navy and I'm the one, he would have gotten a letter or a phone call and they would have said, can you shut your wife up? <laughs> can you please have her pipe down? Because I would have launched a campaign to have you and your wife together and how ridiculous is this? And this is, you know, muted group theory and women having to navigate within the white man's system and oh my gosh, you know, so um, I would have been there for you. I would have gotten your back. Um, they love me. That's sarcasm right there. Um, they totally. <laughs> yeah, I'm like the unsinkable Molly Brown. That's what they think of me. There you go. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Where were you stationed in Hawaii? Uh, my first tour, that tour was at Barber's Point, Hawaii, which is now now closed as part of the one of the BRAC's uh, commission closings back in the 90s. Nice, nice. So we were at Pacific Command. So um, I lived there for five years. It was great for two and a half. And then I was like, get me off this island. But anyway, um, well, I'm glad that you and your wife worked it out and got it together. That is something that makes no sense to me, but there are quite a few things in lots of those uh, institutions, not just the military, but um, lots of big institutions that are run by old white males that, that, you know, they speak old white male. And I just don't, you know, it just doesn't make sense anymore with the workforce being 50% female that they're not considering the language of the user. So, um, I'm with you on that. What a great story. I'm so glad it worked out. I'm assuming you're happily married today or no. Yes? Yes, we are. Awesome. Awesome. Well, good for both of you. Um, I would I would ask you to tell me something surprising about you, but you've told me so many. I'm not sure if there's anything left, but I'm going to go ahead and give it a shot and ask. Is there some surprising fact about you that we don't know and should or or shouldn't, but you're willing to share anyway? Sure. Uh, so you've heard a little bit about my military background, and but it, it, it runs through a lot of our family. And as you know, my wife, as I mentioned, was uh, was on, on active duty in the military as well. But so we were we were both military brats, meaning we were both uh, children who grew up in military families. And so in my first 18 years of my life, um, I moved 14 times. I went to three wow. different high schools. Um, of course, we moved eight more times while I was on active duty for the 30 years. And, you know, between my wife and I, we've served 52 years um, with the military. And so we're uh, proud, proud military families. And uh, so, yeah, I think people are, often we talk about the, uh, you know, the active duty service member remembering, you know, I've seen both sides because I was in a, I was a military brat and I've lived outside of the country and I've lived all over the country as a kid going to a lot of different schools, but remembering that uh, the service members have families too, and that uh, they're, they're an important part of the experience. Yes. Yes. People forget that. Um, thank you for saying that. That's so true. Um, you, you thank you. Thank you for the children. Thank you to the children, for the wives, to the wives, to the husbands who are uh, spouses of the active duty wives who are serving the country. Yeah. So, yeah, often they do go forgotten. Um, and you know, I find all across the country, you find fewer and fewer places that uh, honor the military. And that makes me sad. When I go places, we're the geeky couple that ask, do you have a military discount? Do you honor the military? Oh, only those on active duty or, oh, no, not at all. I mean, it, it's, it's less and less and less. And that makes me sad. But um, 
good of you to recognize that and to mention that. So um, thank you for mentioning that and for saying that. Uh, I want to ask you this because people are going to want to reach out to you and learn more. And I will write into the blog your contact information. But for those who only listen to the podcast and will not read the blog, and that's some people, some people will read it and not listen. Some people will listen and not read. Um, how can they reach you? What if they want to reach out to you directly? What, how do they reach you? Well, thanks for doing that. And I think my website is probably the easiest, and that's davidgsmithphd.com. Um, and you can reach out to me on there, and there's a way to connect with me uh, through the website and see uh, what we're writing about and talking about, where we're speaking, and the work that we're doing, and the books, and all that information is all right there on that website. Well, David, you have been a super duper informative, but still fun at the same time guest. I often have informative guests who aren't nearly as fun. And sometimes I have fun guests that aren't as substantive. Um, you're both. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I can't wait to get my hands on your new book. And I already have your first book. Um, I highly recommend it to those out there listening. Uh, it's been great, and I hope to meet you when you're out here in Sacramento soon. Um, I will introduce you to lots of folks if I can and when I can. Yeah, thanks, Susan. It's been, it's been a lot of fun with, with you as well on here, and thanks for all the work that you're doing out there. Awesome. Well, have a good day, everybody. Thanks for tuning in, and we will hear from you and talk to you and talk at you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>